1: untrained, unsanitary, quick to amputate, probably drunk. We've seen them in Gone with the Wind, Dances with Wolves. But according to Professor Shauna Devine, on the contrary, in her words, the doctors are the unsung heroes of the American Civil War. The revolutionary advances in medicine that we associate with the late 19th century and the triumph of germ theory had their roots in the Civil War. As she writes in her award-winning study, Learning from the Wounded, the Civil War and the Rise of American Medical Science. Professor Devine tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live
2: Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
3: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites,
4: and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or
3: Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by
4: Aircast.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich G at ECU.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. It is a cold and drizzly dark evening on a Wednesday in March of 2019, March 20th, moving well through the spring semester here at East Carolina University, as I sit in my office on the third floor of the Brewster Building in the History Department, but not speaking for the department or the university or its Board of Trustees or the UNC Board of Governors or anybody else, just myself, and my guest I know will do the same likewise tonight. Uh, a lot going on here on campus in the past week. In, uh, in in happy news, the ECU baseball team featured a pitcher who came within one pitch of throwing a no-hitter against national powerhouse Ole Miss two weeks ago, but didn't. He walked a batter, then gave up a hit, and just held on to win 3-2. to two. Instead of being discouraged, the same pitcher went out last weekend and threw a perfect game against Maryland, 27 up, 27 down. Very rare, first one in ECU history. Uh, quite a remarkable pitcher, fun to watch. Uh, our football team is practicing, getting ready for the fall season. Spring practice just started, and the new coach that everybody is all excited about has said in so many diplomatic words, the players don't know the fundamentals of the game. He has taken over a team and says they don't know how to tackle. They don't know how to do anything. Uh, the previous coaching administration did not teach them how to play. And so... Uh, which confirms what we saw in the field the last couple of years. So it'll be interesting to see how much better they do with someone who can actually show them the right way to play. But the big story on campus by far uh, is our chancellor has just resigned. Uh, He's only been here for three years, so it's rather a short term. And the reason he resigned is that the head of the UNC uh, system of which East Carolina is a constituent school, basically basically, told him to and was, in spite of the support, tepid but still support of the faculty and the students and of the East Carolina University Board of Trustees uh, in spite of all that support, the Chancellor has one enemy on the UNC Board of Governors, the system-wide governing body, who happens to be from Greenville and has his own ideas of what ECU should be and he uh, early on tried to get ECU to engage in a, a deal with his real estate or building company, which smacked of conflict of interest. The chancellor told him no, and and ever since then, this board member has had had a grudge out, and finally got his way. He, he's he's the chair of the UNC board of governors, and he has gotten gotten our chancellor fired. So we're all wondering what's going to happen next. We don't have a as of May 3rd, we'll have an interim chancellor. As of July, we'll have an interim dean here in the College of Arts and Sciences. So I'm announcing here that I'm going to withdraw my candidacy for the deanship, for which I'm manifestly not qualified, having never held any administrative office above department chair. Uh, But I'm withdrawing my candidacy for that and will now seek to become the next chancellor of ECU, uh, for which I'm even less qualified. But That doesn't seem to be, uh, it's hard to imagine the qualifications are going to be the issue. So we'll see what happens. Um, If that works out, then I'll I'll be doing the show from the Chancellor's big mansion, which uh, was one of the issues that contributed to him getting fired, although it wasn't his fault. He didn't buy the big mansion, the board did, but there you go. Uh, in non-ECU news, I got a nice email from a listener pointing out that Wilsons Creek National Battlefield is launching a uh, fund drive to conduct a $4.5 million renovation of the park visitor center. They got a nice gift from uh, let's see it says here Bass Pro Shops. So if you play the string bass, uh, I recommend you shop at Bass Pro. Wait, I'm being told it's Bass Pro Shops. Never mind. Bass Pro Shops, who donated uh, $25,000 to the Wilson's Creek National Battlefield Foundation. Coming up on Civil War Talk Radio, moving from that mispronunciation, uh, next week we'll have Jason Phillips here to talk about the Civil War before the Civil War took place. His book is called Looming Civil War How Nineteenth Century Americans Imagined the Future. We'll discuss the Battle of Monocacy with Ryan Quint the following week, April 3rd. Susanna Earle will be back here for uh, the second time to discuss her uh, fairly recent book on Hood's Texas Brigade, which if you haven't read, you will want to do. And then we'll have uh, two more to round out the month of April. Michael Schaefer, another returning visitor, comes back with a book of Thomas Wallace Colley's Recollections of Civil War Service in the First Virginia Cavalry. It's called In Memory of Self and Comrades. And we'll wrap up the month of April 2019 with uh, another old friend of the show, uh, Brad Gottfried. We'll be back he has written a short but intriguing piece called hell comes to Southern Maryland the story of Point Lookout Prison and Hammond General Hospital so lots coming up on the show lots coming up elsewhere in the world the Civil War Institute will be on in June as I mentioned each week uh, come and see me there I'll be just hanging out with the other students this year I'll be on the faculty in 2020 but This year, I'm just just going to be lounging about the place and lining up new guests for the following season, although I'm happy to report that we have just about filled the fall calendar of uh, shows for Civil War Talk Radio with some really intriguing books. I'm looking at the stack on the desk here and uh, look forward to talking with those authors with you uh, in the fall semester of 2019. But there's still a few slots open, and I'll be lining up new guests for that. If you're interested in going to Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, look it up on the Internet and remind them you're a Civil War talk radio listener, and you'll get a discount. If you want to attend something shorter, I will be speaking at Petersburg, Virginia at Civil War Roundtable on April 4th. And the Raleigh Civil War Roundtable on May 13th, so a couple places to run into me. And in the meantime, thank you all for listening, as you do, to Civil War Talk Radio. Our numbers continue to climb, now uh, over 50,000 hits each month on the show. Not 50,000 individual listeners, perhaps it's just two of you each listening 25,000 times, I'm not sure. But lots of hits, and, and that's nice to see. Well, tonight we talk about uh, Civil War Medicine, uh, a book that when I first had it recommended to me, uh, it was Daryl Black at the Civil War, uh, the Museum on Seminary Ridge in in Gettysburg last uh, summer, who said, oh, you have to read this book. And uh, talk to the author, and my first thought is, I usually read books over lunch while I'm in between classes or grading, and this does not look like a book to read over lunch, with its photos on the cover of amputated veterans. Uh, turns out you get over that pretty quickly once you start, as I'm sure the author did once she began her research. Let's talk with her, uh, Professor Shauna Devine, author of the book Learning from the Wounded, The Civil War and the Rise of American Medical Science. Uh, She is a professor in the Department of History of Medicine at the uh, Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry of Western University. Uh, Professor Devine, are you there?
0: I
3: am here. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here this evening.
1: Well, welcome to the show. Did I pronounce correctly your name and the name of your school?
3: Yeah, it's Shauna Devine, the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at Western University, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Medical History there and an associate research professor in the Department of History.
1: So you combine the the disciplines of history and medicine. Uh, so whereas if somebody says, is there a doctor, you know, on the plane, I look about and go, you know, PhD, no, no, it's not me. Um, are, are you do you have medical training where you could actually help somebody?
3: No, not re- I have. I have. Um, I have a PhD in medical history, and I am based in a medical school, so I work a lot with medical students, and I'm surrounded by doctors. Um, but no, you wouldn't. Um, <laughs> I could. I could sit beside you on the plane and tell you all about 19th century American medicine. But if you were in an acute crisis, you you would want to call for that doctor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we, we, both, uh, You and me both, we would be in that same uh, position. Well, this is a really interesting book, an award-winning book, the uh, Tom Watson Brown Award of uh, the Society of Civil War Historians, one of the most prestigious awards a Civil War book can get. And it starts from the premise that we don't, the stereotype we have of Civil War medicine uh, that I mentioned in the introduction of uh, incompetent uh, butchers hacking off limbs is is far from accurate. Uh, so let me start by asking why why do we have this this badly distorted picture of Civil War medicine?
3: Well, there's a few reasons. Um, I think when you look at the sheer death toll, um, new estimates uh, recent estimates show that as many as 750,000 men. Died as a result of this war in just four years, and this is this is more death than we've seen in all other wars that American soldiers had have been uh, involved in from the Revolutionary War until present day. So, 750,000 men in just four years is an enormous uh, loss of life, and two thirds of those deaths were the result of disease. And this was, and I think that the, the people look and, and they, they look at the, the causes of disease and look to the doctors themselves. In many cases, it was disease spreading in the hospitals and an imperfect understanding of aseptic technique and diseases being spread via patients, via sponges, via medical equipment. But I think when you look at that number, you're asking the wrong question and you're beginning in the wrong place. This was before the advent of the germ theory. And it's it's hard to fault. And if you look at what were the architects of the germ theory doing at the same time, Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch, still in school, still in their laboratories conducting experiments. Um, where was medicine in Europe at the same time? And and what's inter- what was interesting to me is when you look at the Civil War physicians. As the war progresses, they start creating experimental conditions, medical experiments in which they can test. Developing theories about germs, and they start asking the same types of questions that these European physicians are asking. So, in a nutshell, this is where medicine is in 1865, and it improved dramatically as a result of the war. So, I think we get this impression because the first year of the war was absolutely a medical disaster. The Army Medical Department was ill prepared for the challenges that lay ahead. And there had to be a a rapid reorganization of medicine. But in the first year of war, people were cognizant that disease was going to be the greatest threat. This war came on the heels of the Caribbean War. 21,000 deaths in the Caribbean War. 16,000 were due to disease. Doctors and the public alike were aware that this was going to be a problem. And when it was a problem, people wrote widely both about the problems of the disease and the ineffectiveness of the medical profession to handle this. That came you know, that became very much the narrative and the sort of advances or or shifts in knowledge that were made have not been as well integrated into the history, historiography or the history. And the second reason is medicine moves so quickly. In the 20 years after the Civil War, even 30 years after the Civil War, it's one of the most dynamic eras of medicine that you see. And I think the next generation of physicians Physicians, those that understand and start trying to incorporate new science and new germ theory uh, ideals into their medical practice are busy promising their patients and the public that they were so much better than uh, the generation before them. So I think that this idea that Civil War medicine was somehow ineffective has persisted. Um, but it's just not the case when you go in and look at the individual sources.
1: Well, the you make a compelling case for that, which we'll talk about uh, the rest of the evening. We're going to take a short break first, and uh, come back talking with our guest, uh, Shauna Divine, is the author of Learning from the Wounded: The Civil War and the Rise of American Medical Science. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs>
0: Stimulating talk gets those
4: synapses in your brain firing really fast.
0: All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
2: Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the River Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in the sea around us, said... that's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking with Shauna Devine, author of *Learning from the Wounded: The Civil War and the Rise of American Medical Science*, we were talking in the first segment about how uh, Civil War doctors have gotten a bad reputation historically. Uh, in part, uh, Shauna, as you mentioned, because the early months, uh, year, first year of the war, there were, there really was a medical disaster in terms of camp diseases as well as wounds. One thing you point out early in the book is that before the Civil War, American medical training was not very intense. Uh, You write to eventually to gain entrance to a medical school, one only had to be able to pay the tuition fees. There were no standardized tests and a college education or even literacy was not a requirement. And I, I note that because it gives me a chance to brag on my daughter, Caroline, who uh, spent a year getting a post-baccalaureate post-bacc- certificate in science classes, worked as an EMT, worked in a doctor's office, and spent a year after the MedCat interviewing and applying, and it has been a utterly grueling process trying to get into a medical school for her, but she succeeded last week, and uh, will oh, be going to med school.
3: congratulations
1: thank you it's very wonderful. much it 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 uh my wife and I are happier than she is we have been been just sweating this out with her no we 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 knew she would do it we were so she. She's a, no it's a it's a uh,
3: it's a wonderful uh, achievement you should be very proud
1: uh, so uh when i read this uh, you all you had to do was pay the fees didn't even ask to be literate, much less. Things have come a long, uh, long way in in many ways. But the the body of Civil War doctors was not initially well-trained, and you had a hidebound leadership in the Army Medical Services. But very quickly, uh, you describe how uh, a new Surgeon General and new doctors made the Union Medical Corps a, a dynamic institution. Could you talk about that transition?
3: Yeah, well just just to go back to your your first thought about medical education because it yes. it, it really is key to the story and and When you look after the War of 1812, you start to see the rise of what's called proprietary medical schools. And they could range from the very, very good, for example, Jefferson Medical College to the very, very poor. And these were medical schools that that simply arose uh, with the objective of making money. And you might have uh, smaller schools that had five or six professors that taught what they wanted to teach, not necessarily what they needed to teach. There were two sets of four-month lectures and the second set of four- was the exact same as the first four months. Um, Learning and teaching was very didactic. Um, Students were eager and they wanted to learn and they read a lot. But the biggest challenge, um, even for the good medical schools, was access. Access to bodies. And at this time, anatomy is the cornerstone of medical education. And there's only two states, for example, on the eve of the Civil War, that have even anatomy acts. So medical students... um, in 1847 and 18, 1846, 1847, 1848, you see the formation of the American Medical Association. And this is an attempt by elite physicians um, those that had gone overseas, in the absence of better educational mo- uh, models and structures at home, you have just under a thousand elite physicians go overseas um, to study in what, what's called the Paris Clinical School, and they go to um, study with the leaders of French science and medicine. This is really the hub of, of medical education and an opportunity for practical experience. In world medicine. And so doctors go over, but American doctors in particular go to Paris for access, for access to bodies, for clinical training, uh, for the opportunity to train with um, the leaders of French science and medicine and, and use diagnostic equipment. And these are all the things, and they come home, and even though it's just under a thousand physicians, their influence moves large in America because these are editors of journals or professors at academic medical schools, um, those that are sort of uh, wanting to reform American medical education, and they come home and they write quite a bit about the importance of, uh, of Paris and, and localized pathology. When they actually start autopsying bodies, they start to see. Uh, lesions within uh, organs and tissues and instead of just sitting and practicing bedside medicine with their patients in a rural setting, they're actually dissecting organs and tissues and bodies and seeing lesions and, and contemplating what these might mean in the development of a disease and they're comparing a clinical picture which might be established at the bedside with what they're seeing postmortem for the first time for many and they come back transformed with ideas about the body and with ideas about medicine. But they come back from Paris to really a a national system of medicine that's just unwilling to accept change. So in 1847 and 48, when these doctors meet and, and form the American Medical Association, there's a conversation about how do we reform medical education? How do we restructure medical education so the doctors are going to come out better trained. And they come up with a list of recommendations. Let's lengthen the curriculum. Let's make sure students have three months of anatomical training. They must have hospital experience. It was possible to get a medical diploma, for example, without ever having set foot in a hospital. And students would complain. They would say, I read this great advertisement for a medical school and they said they had access to hospitals and I was going to get all this practical experience and it turned out to be two beds in an attic. So there was a real problem. But in Jacksonian America, there was the ideal that all professionals should at least have access to the same knowledge. So they medical societies um abandoned licensing laws and really all you needed to practice medicine was the diploma. And because of the state of some of the medical schools in particular, the diploma didn't mean that much. So physicians come in and this is sort of the state of medicine. You have some very, very good physicians, very elite physicians, and those that are ultimately going to be architects of change. And you have others that have very limited experience. I can remember one story of a physician who's never lanced a boil, who's never given, who's never birthed a baby, who has never seen a case, an active case of smallpox or cholera, and he's sort of thrown into the, the, the ward at Satterley Hospital, and he's tasked with training, uh, with treating all these patients. And it's a, transformative experience, but what happens, uh, your, the second part of your question is the Union mm-hmm. Surgeon General. So after a first sort of disastrous start to the war, um, Thomas Lawson is replaced with Clement Finley, uh, Finley, who is the former Surgeon General. Both were old, both were uh, had been around a long time, both believed in sort of the, the military hierarchy, that you had to work your way through the military in order to gain promotion. Um, both really were reluctant to accept new ideas about science, putting um, scientific uh, books on the supply table along with new equipment, for example, microscopes. So The the United States Sanitary Commission, which is a a number of religious figures, in the beginning women, um, intellectuals, and some doctors, civilian physicians, they get together and they start to press the Secretary of War Edward Stanton with statistics from the Crimean War and, and with their concerns about disease and there's a lot of behind-the-scenes maneuvering, which opens the door for the appointment of William Hammond in 1862. And William Hammond had been in the Army, but he resigned to take the chair of physiology at the University of Maryland. But he re- resigns, and after 10 years, um, he comes back into uh, the Army, and he is appointed after some political maneuvering as Surgeon General. And he's been to Europe, he's, been, he's done a tour of the hospitals in Crimea, and he's a friend of science. And this is exactly what they want. And he sees in the war, and he talks about this quite a lot, he sees in the war not only an opportunity to improve military medicine, which was not great uh, leading into it, but he sees in the war a larger opportunity and really a mandate to improve American medicine. And he, well, there are, I think, 55,000 American physicians listed in the census on the eve of the Civil War, and he has more than 13,000 under
1: his command so a large part of the american medical establishment will experience the war uh uh, as medical practitioners one of the things that held medicine back as you, you just noted was the shortage of uh bodies on which to practice cadavers uh or for that matter, living patients. And certainly, if, if more does one thing, it supplies plenty of dead bodies. So so that ceases to be uh, a problem. But you make the point that it's not just that everybody can now have experience with, with new kinds of disease, not new, but... Uh, uh, new to them, diseases to treat in camp and and wounds on the battlefield, but that they bring new technology you mentioned microscopes uh, you talk about photography. Uh, how do these new technologies get applied in in increasing medical knowledge
3: so wh- that's a great question and it, and it's sort of fundamental to the story because um, mm-hmm. firstly hammond issues william Hammond issues the circular only a month after he's Appointed, So you can sort of see where his mind is. And I, I write about it in, in my book and mention it quite a bit, Circular number mm-hmm. 2. And it provides for the establishment of the Army Medical Museum. And this, um, ultimately, we know it becomes the, it evolves into the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, which is recently closed. Um, but in the beginning, in 1862, he sees this idea of having a new physical and social repository, a laboratory in which physicians can... Not only learn um, and teach and study, um, but also create new research projects with the support of the federal government within the uh, confines of this new museum and well beyond, in fact. So through the new museum, he appoints Joseph Woodward as curator of the medical section of the museum. So he's going to be collecting and working with medical specimens. um, And how they did this was if there was a disease that seemed to be um, particularly problematic, diarrhea, dysentery, gangrene, typhoid fever, they would ask physicians, when you're doing, if you need to do an autopsy and you have a particularly virulent case of typhoid fever or many cases in your regimen of diarrhea and dysentery, please do an autopsy and send in the specimens with characteristic lesions or ulcers so that we can examine them at the museum and make sure you send in a case history. So this was significant for two reasons. One, this was the medicine of the Paris Clinical School called localized pathology. So they're starting to look at and study specimens and organs and lesions and ulcers and and trying to understand the role of these pathological manifestations in the clinical picture of disease that might have been established before the patient died or if the patient was still living. Many physicians, uh, particularly the rank and file, had not kept case books. It was almost an anathema for some to write a case report. Some didn't like it. Some resisted the efforts to um, educate physicians and sort of make these more rigorous demands on them. Many elite physicians kept a case book, but this now became mandatory. You you have clamored for a hospital position. You have been awarded a position. You've been a, an awarded a position with this regiment. Whatever role that you have uh, within the union medical service, you have a job. And they would actually follow up on cases and demand. So you had, and this is what I, I used to, my sources to do my research, were these very lengthy, sometimes 10 pages, 20 pages, 30 pages, case histories, and and I talk about this in the book, and I said, I think a lot of people look at the big voluminous medical and surgical history, this big encyclopediatic history of the war, and it's great, Mm -hmm. and it definitely shows the scope and the volume of cases of diseases that they were working with, but when you get into these case histories, all that epistemological dynamism that you see, which really characterizes the war, what they didn't understand, the questions they were asking, changes in ideologies, Jump off the page. And so this is what you see coming in with these specimens. So that Joseph Woodward did the the medical side and John Brinton um, and later uh, George Otis curated the surgical um, side. So a lot of bone specimens and um, specimens that showed the um, results of gunshot wounds and, and damage that the mini ball inflicted and also with case histories and By the end of the war, almost 8,000 specimens had been curated in the museum, and it really became sort of this repository of bodies in which physicians could study, learn, debate, dispute different disease conditions. But one of the things that happened um, during the war, which led to the development of newer technologies and use of newer technologies in medicine, was so many specimens came in and they sort of said, okay, we've now seen all of the different." Um, specimens that have arrived as a a result of gangrene or erysipelas, and just looking at these lesions or looking at the the immense necrosis and tissue damage that we see as a result of these conditions is not telling us much. If we see a sloughing gangrenous wound on a living patient, we might actually be able to examine that pus, examine that slough under the microscope. So they hadn't, a lot of physicians before the war are, are Practicing bedside medicine. I mean, really, it was just cross question a patient, ascertain symptoms, establish a nature of disease, frame a diagnosis. You're working with the family. It's very much community medicine. You might work with your local apothecary. There was not much need. Physicians didn't really understand, and patients especially didn't understand, how a microscope might material improve medical practice. So you see some physicians in their home laboratories working, but It really was not a significant part of medical practice or education. But during the war, and this is not a case of American exceptionalism, physicians are very interested uh, in what's going on overseas. They're reading journal articles, what are the leading physicians doing, and vice versa. Leading physicians are looking now at what American physicians are doing. And microscopy was a very interesting way to try to understand processes of disease. And they they weren't talking in terms of specific microorganisms yet but what they were doing was they were saying well I'm seeing these cells or rotating animalcules or these cryptogrammic organisms or I'm not sure what these are and but I'm seeing them rotating rapidly under the microscope and I'm wondering are they the cause or the product of disease but the conversation slowly starts changing it's it's no longer merely about the patient and the patient symptoms it's thinking about disease as possibly a separate entity of the, pa- of, of the patient. So you're moving away from maybe purely physiological understandings of disease or, or, or constitutional towards a more ontological explanation of what disease might be. So they need this technical equipment to take them to the next level. So that happens in 1863. The Surgeon General starts issuing microscopes for this purpose.
1: I thought that was one of the most interesting things that I was able to take away from this was the the understanding of disease. It, you, you mentioned people didn't, doctors didn't send or keep case reports. If you perceive disease as the individual body going awry in some way, uh, then there's no, no point in taking notes on it because everybody will have a different set of symptoms, If you perceive disease as a a thing in itself, as you say, uh, caused by poison or uh, later they'll discover microbes, uh, then it makes sense to compare because disease exists independent of the body. Uh, but that was very much in, in question at the time. We're going to come back and talk more about this, especially a question of uh, a contagion, which I, I thought was very interesting, uh, and, and how doctors dealt with that. But we will do that in just a moment when we return, talking tonight with Shauna Devine, author of Learning from the Wounded The Civil War and the Rise of American Medical Science. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs>
0: streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voice
2: attention if you're a parent educator social worker or civic or religious leader the most important program you'll hear this week is exploited crimes against humanity host opal singleton and her guest
0: K O P O W I C Z G at E C U dot E D U. Now back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Shauna Divine. She is the author of Learning from the Wounded: The Civil War and the Rise of American Medical Science. Uh, my Favorite chapter in the book, I think, is the one about gangrene and necrosis. And I, as I was looking at my notes, I thought that's that's an odd thing to say. Gangrene is my favorite. You know, who doesn't share that? opinion? <laughs> you
3: know what? I think it's mine uh, too. It's one of mine too.
1: But the, the 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 reason is because you you discuss the uh, the the debate within the medical profession about what causes disease. Is it some Is it internal to the body, something inside goes wrong, or is some external agent coming in? Uh, If it's something coming in, is it carried uh, through bad air, miasma, is it a contagion passed from person to person? Uh, Among other things, I I was struck by your reference to the politics of the, the contagion theory in the Jacksonian era when individualism means that the idea of an imposed quarantine is something the free-born American is not going to put up with. And uh, so there will be no quarantining of contagious people. Uh, And since that would be deadly, uh, to admit that you just have to deny there's any contagion in the first place, and then you can deny quarantining. As that goes in the anti-vaccination movement today, um, just ignore the science and then you can be an individualist uh, so yeah. uh, uh, talk about this this debate between the contagion people and and, and how that worked out uh, how, how civil war doctors discovered what what worked and what didn't
3: well there's a there's a really interesting case um, case study that I, I use in, I'm not sure if you um, if you um, read it closely in the book but I talk about Ignac Semmelweis. And he was a a doctor from Vienna and he wrote on in the 1840s on the connection. He made the connection just through watching his medical students would go into the autopsy room and deal with cadavers and then they would go and deliver a baby. And he started to to deliver babies and he noticed the connection between that and the rise of purpural sepsis. And he he talked about contagion, and he said we have seen a drastic decrease in these cases. If you you know, if I douse my students with disinfectants, and you know it, and he 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 argued that it proved with with um, you know clear evidence that there was indeed contagion. And in 1846, one of the leading American physicians who who agrees with Semmelweis, but he said he says in the 1840s, he says I wasn't going to touch this. This, this was a political hot potato that was, you know, Mm -hmm. that American physicians were just not willing to accept. And this is, I think, 1846 or 1848. And, and the idea, because it was, it was a political hot potato and it would, it would force, uh, the government to get involved into the, into commerce and into, um, business interests and, and sort of mandate, um, you know, how long a ship might have to be quarantined or the movement of people, uh, during times of epidemic and, and things that people weren't willing to accept. So it was as much political as it was medical. But moreover, doctors, unless they had, had maybe worked through an epidemic or had a, an opportunity to work in hospitals, many doctors had not witnessed or seen, um, true evidence of contagion. So there were many mm-hmm. doctors that just, hadn't had an opportunity necessarily to to witness it, and this is sort of if you if you imagine sort of an overlapping chart of of theories you kind of have one bubble that would say miasma theory, and then bordering that bubble would be contagion theory and then bordering those two bubbles would be germ theory so you're at a very Dynamic period in medicine, but I liked gangrene because how it, how I came to it. First of all, was I was reading in the archives Joseph Woodward's um, entrance exam to the army, um, part of Hammond's um, part of Hammond's um, new restriction or, or new uh, requirements for physicians to take an entrance exam, and one of his one of the components of the exam was writing an essay, and he had to write on gangrene and i just remember him saying he said well i've never seen a case of gangrene now he becomes the curator of the medical section of the army medical museum so he's he's got quite a lofty position um, within the union um, medical army but he has never seen a case of gangrene now he later i show in in my book he's doing microscopial examination of gangrenous and he's doing photomicrograph photo but caught me is that many physicians had never seen it and gangrene is responsible for almost 50% mortality in the first year of the war. It goes down to just just over 20% in the fifth year of the war. So gangrene was a disease that was most prevalent in general hospitals and what physicians were able to see is as soon as it seemed to appear it moved very quickly among patients. And the reason why this happened, particularly in the first and second year of the war, as patients started to crowd into the hospital, was simply a consequence of the imperfect understanding of aseptic technique. They hadn't worked in hospitals, they hadn't perfected strategies to prevent diseases, and there was little understanding of contagion. So it was scary because the bacteria doesn't actually um, directly attack the skin, it releases toxins into the skin and muscles, so you see really... Destructive damage to the tissues and organ, and this this grayness, and then blackness, and then complete tissue necrosis. Um, mm-hmm. More tissues become involved as it spreads, and you start to see um, blood clots, and it stops the flow of blood and nutrients. So, I have some really horrible photos of gangrene, but they took so many photos because it was really um, such an instructive disease. But as you mentioned, there were different theories about what caused gang- uh, gangrene and you can sort of tease these out through the many case reports and some people said, yes, this is a constitutional uh, disease. It, it, it's it's resulting because somebody is debilitated, they have suffered from exposure, poor diet, fatigue, um, impure water and they've somehow been exposed to a miasmatic atmosphere. Other people said, you know, my patient was very healthy until otherwise healthy. He had a wound that was healing, and he's now come into this hospital. I believe that this is somehow a local um, affliction. It, it must be transmitted through contact with, with sponges that have been used from bed to bed, patient to patient, or through wash bowls or surgical instruments. So they, they were starting to talk about the possibility this might be being transmitted, maybe cells in the air, maybe on the fingers of attendants, um, some people thought there needed to be a mixture. You needed something maybe in the air, but you needed to be debilitated. Um, and other people went so far as to say it's a physiological disorder. They they drew on um, cellular pathology, Rudolf Virchow's um, description of cellular pathology and said it must be diseased cells um, moving through the body as cells divided. So they were looking at chemical and physical changes. So there were different that were related. So what was interesting is in 1863, on the orders of Hammond, Middleton Goldsmith, who was a, a physician, um, him and Benjamin Woodward and John Britton were put in charge of a larger investigation. There was a circular issued and they said, we want you to trace, um, ask for a, a, a mass collection of case reports related to gangrene, ask for physicians to describe symptoms, Pathology treatment when they think it happened and you you uh, how did they happen do they think it's contagious so it, these these really full case reports about gangrene come in and and you see John Brinton he has a an entire book devoted you see drawings the photographic record is is full of disease and this is really where they start to use the microscope and they start to use the microscope to try to understand the role of what these, these cells or animalcules might, might be and in, and one particularly compelling experiment that I write about in the book is Ben Woodward and he actually takes um, gangrenous matter from a, a, a wound, an active case of gangrene and he actually inoc- inoculates it into a so-called healthy wound just to see if gangrene will appear he actually does this um, and and writes a letter to uh, John Brinton and says, "I'm positive it's contagious, and this is what I've sort of discovered." So they're they're starting to uh, do experiments that are going to foreshadow, um, not on humans, uh, not always not on humans in particular, but it's going to foreshadow some of the research that we see in germ theory in the germ theory era, but. As ideas about contagion and spread become more pronounced in these investigations, they start testing remedies. And the one that I write about um, most is bromine. And they saw this as sort Mm -hmm. of a miracle disinfectant during the war. And they used it in in a multitude of ways. They would deprive the wound, clean the wound of all tissue and debris, and then they would actually um, inject the wound or place bromine onto the wound to stop the spread of infection. And they saw remarkable results with this. They don't see the further spread of this disease into the blood stri- uh, bloodstream, which informs a lot of physicians, you know what, I think that this is somehow a local infection and it might be being spread in the air or by people. So they start using bromine in really interesting ways. They fill up empty quinine jars and place it all around beds. And they, they they're talking about not just having a smell in the air, but that the, the the powerful disinfectant might actually kill a cryptogrammic organism or a cell or something. So they're talking about using disinfectants to kill something in the air outside of the body. So they're getting very close and they, use, they even use carbolic acid. Now this becomes Joseph Woodward's great discovery when he's doing surgeries in 1867, the use of carbolic acid to stop what he calls the mischief of of germs during surgery, um, they're getting very close to this and they start whitewashing walls and using disinfectants in very interesting ways. So when poisons or cells or animalcule becomes microbes or more microorganisms in, in the era or bacteria in the era of the germ theory, the management strategies don't have to change much, just the language. So it's a remarkable practical experience for these Civil War physicians.
1: It it really was something how they they by trial and error they they use these disinfectants like bromine and 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 people get better people don't get sick they they discover they isolate patients uh, instead of crowding them together the disease does not spread it's it's quite quite a new thing there is a, a great deal more in this book we just have a, a minute or two left uh, you talk about all kinds of interesting topics the spread of uh, medical specialization and professionalization. Uh, you mentioned uh, something I knew nothing about, the post-war 1866 cholera outbreak and how uh, Civil War medicine lessons were applied to treat that in a public uh, health fashion. Uh, but for a concluding thought, uh, what what would you say was the biggest overall uh, change or, or uh Consequence of the union medical experience and medical science uh, during the war.
3: I would say, knowledge production and the diffusion of of these new techniques. Um, we we still can't. When when you think of seven hundred and fifty thousand dead, you know it. it it's uh-huh. really it really might seem counterintuitive to say anything, and and I think. Um, when you look at the state of american medicine in 1858 and and on a national basis and even even going back further to the the first meeting of the ama there was so much uh resistance to change and um, not a lot of support for adding new sciences uh to the medical school curriculum anatomy acts um only two on the eve of the Civil War and 17 anatomy riots. So it was a, a recognition um, that science and an increased role of science in the role of medical practice, medical education, and even the public. Um, I think this this recognition um, and acceptance that science might be able to offer something. Um, and because of that, a social contract between the medical profession who who used science and the new authority um, grounded in new types of scientific medicine that they were able to engage in in the, in the hospitals and laboratory, and the public who came to the Army Medical Museum or who saw the hospitals and or who visited new specialists after the war, who came to maybe also expect something from regular medicine, I think that the knowledge and diffusion of this knowledge had a transformative impact on the way in which medical practice was um, both positioned and and practiced in the United States, but also accepted. And I think that when when the germ theory became known and accepted after the war, and the medical landscape changed so quickly, I think that the Civil War prepared the public and the doctors alike for this transformation that was taking place.
1: That is a It's a dramatic story. It's a a fascinating one. Uh, If Listeners, if you're put off by the thought of reading about gangrene in your leisure hours, uh, don't be. uh, You will learn a lot. Uh, You will be fascinated. You'll get a a sense of how medicine transformed during the war years. The book is Learning from the Wounded, the Civil War and the Rise of American Medical Science. Author Shauna Devine. Shauna, thank you so much for being on the show tonight.
3: Thank you very much for having me. Good luck to your baseball team. Good luck to your football team, and especially good luck to your daughter. I hope, well, that, uh, you I so hope that you have a, I hope you have a wonderful uh, spring so, sports season and fall academic year. Well,
1: th- thank you. The same to you and listeners. As always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.